All right, once again, I want to welcome all of our Mount Pleasant and Impact family to our service today, as well as all of you who are joining us as guests. And listen, if you are a guest with us today, we're just so grateful that you're a part of our service, and I'd love to encourage you to just reach out to your online host and introduce yourself. We're not going to try to get anything from you. We would just really love the opportunity to meet you. Well, we've come to that part of our service where we have the great joy of opening up our Bibles together and spending some time learning from God's Word. We're in a sermon series called Blind Spots, and what we're doing is we're talking about different faults and different flaws and different weaknesses that sometimes creep into our lives in ways that we can't see, and that is the very definition of a blind spot. A blind spot is something that we can't see or we don't see. When I was first researching this series, I found a lot of different verses that point out the truth that God knows all about the possibility of blind spots in our lives. Let me just share one of you from, or excuse me, let me just share one of them with you from David. It's in Psalm 19 and verse 12 when he writes these words, who can discern his errors? And then he says, forgive my hidden faults. Obviously, David understood that sometimes our sin can be hidden in blind spots. And really, if you know anything at all about the life of David, you know that uh, blind spots were pretty much a part of his life in a lot of different ways. I mean, who can forget that time when David uh, committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba? And when he found that Bathsheba was pregnant, he tried to hide his sin by ordering that her husband, a man named Uriah, would be placed in the front line of the army. David's army was off at war at the time. That he would be placed in the front line in the most dangerous place where he would be sure to be killed. And then when he was killed, David took Bathsheba into the palace as his wife and attempted to go on with his life business as usual. But then sometime later, God sent the prophet Nathan to talk to David. And when he came to David, he told him this, this story. He told him the story about a rich man who had literally virtually everything. And then he told him, in contrast to that, about a poor man who had nothing except one little lamb. And he loved that lamb dearly, he treated that lamb like it was one of his children. And uh, he was a prized possession to him. But one day, the rich man had a friend come visit him from out of town. And rather than killing one of his lambs or one of his cattle or something like that to provide a meal for his friend, he took the one lamb of the poor man and slaughtered it and used it for the meal to serve his friend. And when David heard that, he was outraged and he demanded that the rich man pay for that lamb four times over. And that opened the door for the prophet Nathan to point his finger in David's face and say basically to him, hey, David, you are that man because you're the king who had everything and you took the wife of this one man. And listen to me, David had a huge blind spot about that. And if that can happen to somebody like David, who is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, then surely it could happen to anyone. Surely it could happen to you, and it could happen to me. Now, so far, we have talked about the blind spot of fear and anxiety. We've talked about the blind spot of idolatry. And today, we're going to talk about the kind of blind spots that can creep into our families. And once again, today I know we have a lot of children who are listening along with their parents. And I want you to know that I'm, I'm just as anxious, maybe even more anxious than you, for that day 
when we can return to normal in-person weekend services. I'm very anxious to reopen Bibleopolis and reopen our student ministry center for our kids and our students. But the truth is that's going to take a little bit of time. And so let me give you something to do as a part of this message. And mom and dad, you, I want you to do this as well. And you might need to help your children, especially if they're a little bit younger. I'm going to ask three questions. And so I want you to get a piece of paper and something to write with. And I want you to write down these questions, and then I want you to answer them. Uh, sometime after the service, you can have a meaningful family time together, and you can talk about your answers as a family. But here are the three questions. The first one is this. What's the best thing about being under a stay-at-home warning, or order, rather, with my family? What's the best thing about being under a stay-at-home order with my family? That's question number one. Write that down, and at some point today, I want everyone to answer that question. Here's the second question. What's the worst thing about being under a stay-at-home order with my family? So the first one is about what's the best thing? What do I like the most? The second question, what's the worst thing? What do I dislike the most? And then here's the third question. I want you to open up your Bibles at some point today to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14. Now this is what Philippians 2.14 says in my NIV Bible. It says, do everything without complaining or arguing. And in light of that verse, I want you to answer this question. How would you say you're doing when it comes to obeying these words during this stay-at-home order? And again, the words were, do everything without complaining or arguing. Again, I want you to answer those questions. And then sometime today or sometime this week, Sit down and have a good family talk about your answers. And in addition to that, it would be great if some of you would maybe take a picture of the paper with the question and the answer and then post those on social media just using our standard MPCC service selfie or impact service selfie. We'd love to have a look at those. Recently, I read a New York Times article called What Students Are Saying About Family Conflict in Quarantine. Now, I don't have time to share the entire article, but I did uh, jot down some highlights to share with you as a part of this message, some things that stood out to me. Here's the first one. Somebody said, if I'm being honest, I feel like I've been arguing with my parents so much more during quarantine. Another one that stood out to me is this. I feel that we are facing more conflict as time passes. I can see these changes happen as we spend more time together in the house. I've been getting into more problems with my mom and we just keep on arguing. A third one I wrote down is this. Throughout the pandemic, family conflicts have been brief but frequent. The irritability and boredom caused by self-isolation have caused us to be quick to insult each other, which then escalates into fiery arguments that surface feelings that have long been repressed. Now, I could give you several other examples along those lines, but let me just give you one more that's a little bit different. Somebody wrote this. I feel like being in self-quarantine with my family has benefited all of us. And here's why. Before all of this happened, we never really got a lot of family time for many different reasons. Now, while we would all agree that that's a positive comment, it's also a comment that reveals a family weakness. Before all this happened, we never really got a lot of family time for many reasons. That's a family weakness, or what we might call a blind spot. 
What about marriage? Marriage relationships. How has this coronavirus craziness impacted marriage? How has being under a stay-at-home order impacted marriage? Uh, maybe you're two different people when it comes to the way you view this coronavirus. Maybe one of you looks at it and thinks, oh my gosh, the sky is falling, while the other looks at it and says, you know what, this isn't really a big deal. It's all overblown and on and on and on. That can set up room for a lot of conflict. How about when you're not used to spending every single day, every hour of every single day together. You're more used to a routine where at least one of you gets up and goes to work while the other stays home, or you both go to work and you have that time of separation. I, I can see that setting up the opportunity for conflict. When I was doing some research on this, I did run across something that I thought was pretty clever the other day by uh, one couple. Uh, both of these spouses are used to getting up and going to work every day and then being together in the evening. And they decided that since they were gonna be together every day, 24 hours a day, the best way to preserve harmony in their home was to invent a fictional coworker that they could blame things on. And so as a result of that, uh, a fictional woman named Cheryl, I don't know how they came up with the name Cheryl, but a fictional woman named Cheryl began to live at their house. And here's the deal about Cheryl, she's very inconsiderate. She leaves dirty dishes around the house all the time. She never puts things back where they belong and on and on and on. And this couple, honestly, they're not quite sure what they're gonna do about Cheryl. But here's the bottom line. This unprecedented time of disruption brought on by the coronavirus creates stress for all of us. And one of the things that stress can do is reveal the flaws and the faults and the weaknesses, the blind spots that we sometimes have in our family relationships, in our marriage, in the relationship we have with our children. And so that's what I wanna spend some time talking with you about today. And listen, before I go any further, let me say, if you're single, I don't want you to think there's nothing for you in this message because in just a little while, I'm gonna turn my attention in my Bible to Romans chapter five and a teaching that will benefit anyone. So you hang in there with me. As we begin this message or to dive into the detail of this message, let's just acknowledge a fundamental truth together. And that fundamental truth is there's no such thing as a perfect family. And listen, this is something that you really need to wrap your mind around and acknowledge because acknowledging that can relieve a lot of pressure from your life. There's no such thing as a perfect family. In fact, that's so important. I want all of you listening to me to say that with me. Let's just say it together. Here we go. There's no such thing as a perfect family. Now, over the years, I, I have known people in all the churches I've served who have gone to great lengths to make it look like they had a perfect family while all the while behind the scenes, their family was really falling apart. That's especially true in this day of social media. But while there may appear to be something that might be referred to as the perfect Facebook family, in real life, there is no such perfect family. And along with that, there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. You would honestly, folks, if we were just talking one-on-one, -on -one, you would be shocked uh, for me to tell you the number of times when someone, a, a, a spouse, a husband, or a wife has told me in private, I don't want to be married anymore. I just don't want to be married any longer. And I think we could all agree that that's a pretty strong and significant statement. But then the next week or within the next couple of weeks, I see them, that same person, 
posting perfect looking pictures with their spouse, their husband or their wife on vacation or out to eat or in some event somewhere. And listen to me, that's a problem. And let me take that one step further. That's not just a problem for you. That's a problem for God. And here's why I say that. First, because the Bible makes it clear that God wants us to always be honest, that he wants us to always tell the truth. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 20, we read about seven things that are detestable to God, and two of the seven have to do with lying. In that passage, we're told that God hates a lying tongue and that he hates a false witness who pours out lies. Being honest and telling the truth is so important to God that Jesus, who was God in human flesh when he was in the world, said these words in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus described himself as the truth. And again, Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man. He was God in human flesh. Now, contrast what Jesus says about being the truth with what Jesus says about the devil in John chapter 18 and verse 44, at least the latter part of the verse. This is what Jesus says about the devil. He says, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That means people who lie, that means people who are not honest about the reality of their lives have something significantly in common with the devil. I don't know anyone who would want to be described like that. God wants us to be honest because God values the truth. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9, when Paul writes to the believers in the city of Colossae, he writes these words, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying that lying is not supposed to be a part of the life of a believer. My favorite verse in the Bible about being honest is Proverbs 24 and verse 26, where the proverb writer writes and says, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. I love that description because who doesn't love a kiss on the lips? And that's how important honesty is. Well, the second reason why pretending to have a perfect family or a perfect marriage is a problem for God is because he was always so honest in his presentation of family life and marriage in the Bible. And honestly, you see that right from the beginning. When Eve believed the lies of Satan regarding the fruit in the garden, ate the fruit, and then convinced Adam to eat some as well. If you remember the story, when they were confronted by God, Adam doesn't hesitate. In the blink of an eye, he completely throws Eve under the bus. It wasn't my fault. It was this woman you created. You move on in the Bible, and you've got the story of Abraham and Sarah, who had multiple issues in their marriage and their family. All the way from Abram, or Abraham rather compromising Sarah by telling his enemies that she wasn't really his wife, that she was his sister, to the two of them failing to trust the promise of God that they would one day have a son together and taking matters in their own hands by arranging for Abraham to have a child with Sarah's handmaiden, a woman named Hagar. Then there's Isaac's family. Isaac, of course, was the son that Abraham and Sarah ultimately had together. He and his wife, Rebecca, had twin boys, and they played favors, or favorites with their twin boys. Rebecca helped her favorite, Jacob, steal his twin brother Esau's birthright by deceiving his father, Rebecca's husband, Isaac. Jacob goes on to have his own family. Jacob has 12 sons, but then Jacob shows blatant favoritism to one of his sons, 
a son named Joseph. That leads the other brothers to hate Joseph so much that one day they sail him into slavery to a band of Egyptian thugs. Then they go home and tell their father that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. And I could go on and on and on. I mean, if that's not enough, I could spend an hour talking about the dysfunction in David's marriages and David's family. And here's why I say all that. God didn't reveal all of this truth to us about the reality of marriage and family so that we could go out and act like we have perfect marriages and we have perfect families. And so if you've been trying to convince other people that that's the case, that you have a perfect marriage or that you have a perfect family when it's not true, then here's my word to you. Stop it and stop it right now because there's no such thing as a perfect marriage and there's no such thing as a perfect family. Now, having said all of that, here's the deal. Surely spending the last 10 weeks together has given you a clearer picture than anything you've ever had before of the state, the real state of your family relationships, of your marriage, your relationship with your children. And while I'm sure, and I would rejoice in this, that there are some who would say, you know what, our marriage and our family is stronger than it's ever been before, I'm sure that there are those who would say, you know what, we've got some problems because some blind spots have been revealed to us. Things like weaknesses in communication or a lack of appreciation or a lack of an ability to simply spend time together have been exposed through this time of living under a stay-at-home order. Or maybe what you've seen is that you don't need all of the activities and all the busyness and all of the chaos of your old schedule because this time together has made you realize that those things are making you miss out on the things that matter the most. That's a whole different kind of blind spot. Either way, regardless of where you fall into that, I've got a teaching from you, for you, rather, from God's Word that I think is appropriate. And that takes all of us to Romans chapter 5. I've got my Bible open to Romans chapter 5, and if you've got your Bible handy, then I would encourage you to open your Bible there as well. And while you're turning there, I want to just go ahead and tell you that this is going to seem like a really strange text of Scripture to use to talk about families, marriage, and family relationships. But I want you to bear with me because I think that you'll see my meaning pretty clearly as we get a little bit further into this. I'm going to read from my NIV Bible verses 1 through 5. You follow along as I read. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then we get to verse 3. And he says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. We'll stop right there. Now, honestly, folks, it's really just verses 3 and 4 that I'm going to spend some time talking about because here's what I want you to know. And I want you to bear in mind that 
I've been married for over 38 years. I've raised two children. I now have three grandchildren. So I'm not talking to you as a poser. I'm not talking to you as someone who doesn't have real life experience in this. I'm talking to you as someone who has failed as a husband and as a father more times than I can even count. But what I want you to know from this passage, and in particular, what Paul writes there in verses 3 and 4, is that a significant part of building a great family, a significant part of building a great marriage, is suffering. And I say that again because of what Paul has written to us in verses 3 and 4. He says, after he talks about the fact that they can rejoice in the glory of God or in the hope of the glory of God, he says in verses 3 and 4, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Let me tell you a story I found the other day when I was putting this message together. It's a story about a farmer's donkey who stumbled into an old dried up well. For hours, the animal cried out in the well while the farmer tried to figure out what he should do. Finally, he decided that since the animal was so old and the well was dangerous being open and exposed like that, it, and needed to be covered, it wouldn't be worth the time or the effort to try to get the donkey out. And so he just contacted his neighbors and invited them over to help him just fill in the well, donkey and all. And as the first shovel loads of dirt uh, came down on top of the donkey, the donkey seemed to know what was happening and began to cry out in panic. But then the strangest thing happened. The animal, the donkey, went completely silent. A little later when the farmer looked down into the well, he was shocked by what he saw. Because what he saw was that as each shovel full of dirt struck the back of the donkey, the donkey just shook it off its back, shifted his feet, and stepped up on top of the newly fallen dirt. Many hours later, many shovel loads of dirt later, the donkey just had risen to the edge of the well, stepped out, and trotted off. And more than anything else, that's a story about finding a way to rise above the pitfalls, the dirt loads that all of us face as we go through life. We face those in a variety of ways in our lives. You know, there are times that are going to come into our lives and into our marriages and into our families that make us feel like we're being buried alive. But that doesn't mean something good can't come from those times. This coronavirus, this COVID-19 pandemic certainly falls into that category. It's been difficult. It's caused suffering. It's an unprecedented disruption for all of us. But that doesn't mean that something good can't come out of it for all of us. We've just got to trust in God's Word. We've just got to trust in the counsel of God that we find here in Romans chapter 5. Because God is telling us Three simple things that we need to hang on to for our family relationships. The first one is this. Suffering produces perseverance. We go back and we look at the first part of verse 3 in Romans 5 again. And it says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings 
because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Now, I want you to notice what Paul doesn't say in that verse. He doesn't say we rejoice because of our sufferings. There's nothing in the Bible that makes us think that God takes pleasure in our sufferings or that we should somehow take pleasure in our sufferings, that God expects that from us. The book of Hebrews says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, for the joy set before him endured the cross. But listen, it wasn't the cross that put a smile on Jesus's face or that brought joy to his heart. It was what the cross led to, what it ultimately led to. We look in the Old Testament, and Old Testament prophets repeatedly, over and over again, stressed the truth that God wanted to see the suffering of His people relieved, that He wants His people to be agents of relief when it came to the suffering in other people's lives. You get to the very end of the Bible, and you get the book of Revelation, and it says that this is God's ultimate goal, to wipe every tear from our eyes. His ultimate goal is this new Heaven and earth will there be no more death and no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so what we need to remember is that those who rise above the difficulties of life don't do so because they've somehow learned to enjoy the pain or the suffering of life. They do so because they understand that the pain and the suffering of life comes with an opportunity and that's the opportunity to develop perseverance. And do you know what perseverance is? You know what a good definition of perseverance is? It's courage stretched out. And it's worth the pain. And it's worth the difficulty. It's worth the suffering because it's something that can only be developed as the result of those things. In their landmark book called Cradles of Eminence, psychologists Victor and Mildred Gertzel described their attempt to find a common thread that could account for the phenomenal achievements of the famous and the exceptional people they wrote about in their book. They expected it to be something like remarkable intelligence or extraordinary parenting or, or unusual opportunities, but what they discovered is the one link that the majority of the people they wrote about who were wildly successful had in common was that they all had to overcome some great obstacle to become who they were. Now, the truth is, most of us, if not all of us, we want obstacles out of our lives. We want difficulty and suffering out of our lives. We want those things removed from our lives. We want them removed from our marriages. We want them removed from our families. In fact, a lot of parents would do anything to remove suffering and difficulty and pain from the lives of their children. But Paul is telling us that suffering, pain, difficulty, however you want to describe it, is valuable to all of us because of what it produces in our lives, and that's perseverance. And listen, friends, perseverance is something that is desperately needed when it comes to marriage and family, especially when it comes to building great marriages and great families. The second simple thing that Paul is teaching us is this. Perseverance produces character. He says suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. Now, let me read to you what might best be described as a parallel passage to what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5 about 
perseverance producing character. It's probably a familiar passage to many of you. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James writes and says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Just like Paul said, suffering develops perseverance. And then James goes on to say, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so, in other words, James is saying exactly what Paul is saying. First of all, he's saying that, that, that trials, suffering, produces perseverance, and that perseverance produces character. James described it like this. He said, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So he's just echoing the principle that Paul shares in Romans. And that is that there's value in suffering and difficulty and pain. There's value in learning perseverance from those things and being committed to perseverance shows further value because it develops or produces character. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever said to you when you were going through a difficult period of time in your life, maybe when you were going through a time of suffering in your life, something like this, this is a character-building experience or this is a character-building time for you? Well, that's absolutely true for a number of different reasons. Let me just mention three. First, because it produces wisdom in our lives. Going through times of, of suffering and pain, difficult character-building times, produces wisdom in our lives. Think of it like this. Whenever you face suffering in your life or difficulty or pain in your life, that's the result of some stupid thing that you've done, some thoughtless thing that you've done, then hopefully you're going to be wise or wiser as a result because you're going to learn to never make that mistake again. Hopefully. Second, because it produces a greater level of grace and compassion in our lives towards others. When we suffer, when we go through difficulty, when we experience pain, then that produces a greater level of grace and compassion in our lives towards other people when they're going through similar things. Here's another question. Who is the most comforting, the most caring friend to someone who has suffered, to someone who's lost a child, to someone who's lost a marriage, to someone who's lost their health or their job or something like that? Well, I think we all know the answer to that question. It's the person who suffered in a similar way. They ultimately, ultimately become what Henry Nouwen once called wounded healers. Third, because it produces a greater valuing of relationships. Whenever we go through suffering, whenever we go through pain and difficulty, we have a greater value of our relationships because those things drive us into the arms of the people that we know love and care about us the most. I'm certain that the difficulty and the suffering and the pain brought about by this coronavirus has done that for a lot of marriages. Hopefully it's brought you together. It's done that for a lot of families and that's a good thing. Finally, the third simple thing that Paul says in that Romans 5 passage is that character produces hope. He said suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and finally, character produces hope. Let me give you just the simplest explanation of what Paul is saying. 
He's basically saying, listen, friends, there's a place where suffering that produces perseverance, that produces character ends, and that place is called hope. And Paul says in the first part of verse 5 of Romans 5, hope does not disappoint. Everyone needs hope. And I'm sure that today there are a lot of people who need hope for a marriage or hope for their family. So let me just go back to what I said earlier. Great marriages and great families are built through suffering. They're built through difficulty. They're built through trials. They're built sometimes through pain. And if the difficulty and the, the suffering and the trial and the pain of the coronavirus has exposed some fault or some flaw or some weakness in your marriage, some blind spot in your marriage or in your family, then listen to me, do not be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Just follow Paul's formula in Romans chapter five, verses three through four. And let that suffering produce perseverance. Let that perseverance produce character and let that character lead you to hope. Let it produce hope in your life and in your marriage and your family. Maybe you can start all of this simply by talking about your answers to those questions I gave you in the beginning. What's the best thing about being under a stay-at-home order with my family? What's the worst thing about being under a stay-at-home order with my family? In light of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, where Paul writes and says, Do everything without complaining or arguing. How would you say you're doing at your house, in your marriage, in your family, when it comes to obeying those words under this stay-at-home order? Don't waste this time. Don't waste this time of suffering. Don't waste this time of difficulty or trial. Don't waste this time of pain. All the things that are being brought into our lives as a result of this coronavirus. Let God use it to ultimately build a better marriage and a better family than you've ever had before. He can do it. Let all of it end in one single word, and that word is hope. I want you to pray with me today. Father in heaven, thank you so much for a chance to spend some time in your word. Thank you for the simplicity of Paul's words here in Romans chapter 5, in particular verses 3 and 4, when he simply writes and says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Let those be the reality of what's happening in our marriages and in our families so that in this unprecedented time, of difficulty. We end up with a stronger, better marriage and a stronger, better family than we've ever had before. Help us to be honest. And from a point of honesty, help us to move forward in our relationships, our family relationships, with hope. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.